This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. I mean, you've always, you like injecting yourself. Uh, in a novel, when you inject yourself, you are just, it's just a device to tell the story. Uh, it's a device so you can move around in the story. You can look at different, you can, you have a lot, if, if you're telling the story, you have a lot of different cameras you're using, at this, you, 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 you have a lot of angles you're using. If I used to write to, uh, I think what you mean is that I used to write essays yes. or, or I'd inject myself into reporting, which I used to do that. It was just kind of one of those things that I wanted to do it at the time and then I stopped wanting to do it. I had some intention of kind of breaking down the barrier between the writer and the reader and talking to the reader in a direct way. I think I thought at the time that a lot of people weren't believing what they were reading. This was during the Vietnam War. So I wanted to come on to the reader not as an authority but as somebody who was going to be straight with them. Hello everyone and welcome to By the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin. Joining me as always is my fellow commemorator Sharmila Ganesan. Hello. So uh, today we are actually going to be paying tribute of sorts. It is our monthly bibliography episode and we are dedicating it to an author who passed away in the waning days of 2021, uh, specifically 23rd December, and that is Joan Didion. I think this might be the first time we're doing a bibliography directly in response to a writer passing away. And um, it, it got me actually kind of oddly sad and also makes a segment like this both very relevant but oddly filled with pressure because I feel like we need to adequately pay tribute to someone like Joan Didion because she's that kind of writer, right? Um, she's so pervasive. She's got this outsized um, reputation as um, a writer, a commentator, a journalist and has gone on to be definitive for so many writers for decades after. Um, so I'm, I'm excited, but I'm, I'm also sort of sad because I think I almost felt like she was one of those writers who would be around forever. Uh, perhaps because she always commented on current culture. I, I think that that is that sense of uh, not just of loss, but of immediate loss or of her... Uh, her cultural currency, perhaps. I think that's where it's coming from because the other part of what we have to discuss when it comes to Joan Didion is the breadth of writing. And this is something that we've encountered with a few other writers who weren't only novelists or only poets, right? Um, where they have written, yes, novels, yes, nonfiction biographies. But then with Joan Didion, we also have to talk about uh, the various essays that she wrote, as well as her participation in a what was at the time called new journalism, which is something that we can get into. But it's just a an application, right, of um, an application of novelistic techniques and style to what was essentially reportage. And so these are all the different things that come into play when you try to talk about Joan Didion. So I understand your apprehension. And I think that there is also the other thing about how for... Uh, uh, I wanted to say this early, which is that one of the posts that I saw um, upon her passing were, began with um, how she was a sort of North Star for a certain type of woman. And I wanted to start with that because actually Joan Didion, her style and her preoccupations in some ways made her really a woman's writer. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think the reason for that is that she made it okay for you to be 
we've we've said this before, but she was sort of the early predecessor of the unlikable woman trope, right? You can be complicated. You don't have to be nice all the time. Um, you don't have to have a acceptable, neutral opinion on everything. You can call things as they are. You can talk about your neuroses, your, your mental health issues, and do them all while also actually coming across as so cool and so... Um, I was going to say together, but that's not actually fair. She never presented herself as a together person, but I think cool and aspirational and, and accomplished. And I think that's hugely inspiring for women who are often told that there are very strict molds within which they can operate. I was all set to go to her biography, but now that you've brought that up, I wanted to take a bit of time to talk about the difference between uh how Joan Didion wrote about herself and how others wrote about her. <laughs> because um, I think that the way she wrote about herself and the Didion woman, so to speak, the character that populated her her novels uh, or the, the omniscient narrator from which a lot of her essays and um, uh, sort of cultural observations stemmed from, was a woman who in some ways was holding herself together against the rot of society or who always felt as if... Um, she was on the verge of observing a national hysteria, which would then prompt a personal hysteria. She was never hysterical, but it was always living on the edges and the periphery of her writing. And yet, the photo that is probably most abiding of Joan Didion is of a very either a, a very 60s-looking, chic young woman staring frankly down a camera or leaning against a car, sunglasses and sunglasses on face, cigarette in hand. Cigarette in hand, yes. Um, and, and those are the images of Joan Didion that we see proliferated everywhere. And yet, yeah, there is that push and pull between, I don't think she presented herself that way at all. And yet this is how um, many generations of women who found her cool, as you point out, remember her. I think it's it's that weird thing, isn't it? When you don't care how you come across, you become really cool. Um, and I think she embodied that in many ways. And that's why even uh, women of our generation, women of a generation below us, and even women now, um, when they um, discover her or come across her or even come across her quotes on Instagram, find her still so identifiable. So... To start at the beginning, um, Joan Didion was born on December 5th in 1934 in Sacramento, California. And this is important. This is the one thing that you need to know about her is where she was born. Because uh, the state of California came to inform so much of her writing over time. Um, and not just the kind of golden surfer hippie girls and boys uh, that you would be thinking of, but also of this idea of frontier spirit and toughness. Uh, the other elements of California that people might not think of. Of. But yes, uh, that is where she was born. She had a kind of a peripathetic, non-traditional early education and life. They moved around quite a bit. Her father was uh, in the Air Corps, so I think they, they had a little bit of a transitional kind of life. Um, but she took a very early interest in writing, you know, even sitting down and typing out sentences um, in order, not her sentences, sorry, the sentences <laughs> of other writers. Ernest Hemingway in particular. Yes, um, in order to understand the structure and power of how to place words, where to place punctuation. She's also talked about how um, her mother essentially got her to start writing um, very early, I think at the age of four or five, as a way of dealing with her anxiety. Um, so to write things down, um, she called herself a very uh, bookish child. She read a lot. Um, she also uh, did acting and public speaking. But I love all of these things because I feel like it's things that any 
any child who grew up being um, slightly odd, perhaps um, not feeling like they really belonged, found solace in books and words and sentences. Um, so recognizable. I love that she talks so much about how much she loved the sentence and how important she found um, sentences were and how you know, the usage of words can shift meaning because that's something you can definitely see in all of her works, right? The the slavish devotion to constructing sentences. Um, again, something that I think journalism honed and and then she managed to really make into a, 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 a such a defining way of her writing style. I wouldn't say that her writing was driven by narrative. It was driven by a narrative style, which is to say descriptive, um, you know, conscious of structure, uh, conscious of how exactly you build up and, you know, let people settle down, things like that. Uh, but if you look at the the kinds of articles that she wrote, as well as her non uh, sorry, as well as her fictional work, uh, she wasn't exactly devoted to a jam packed story. Uh, you could have one woman driving across the United States, thinking about the state of her life. That is a book. Uh, you could have, you know, that's that's what I was trying to get at earlier with the idea of the the central Didian woman, um, and coupled with. Ex exactly this kind of devotion to structure and grammar or primarily to structure and the form of writing, the form of words that we're talking about. That's how you end up with the novels that she had. Now, this doesn't necessarily apply to her screenplays, which is something that we can get to later. But um, to go back to her life, so she... She took an early interest in writing. She did get a uh, bachelor, a bachelor's degree in English from UC Berkeley, basically. And subsequently, she worked for a variety of magazines, including Vogue and Time. Yes, and really that that classic arc, I think, of someone joining um, joining a, a platform or at that point a magazine, Vogue, um, working their way up, writing articles. And I think at a particular point, while she had already been at Vogue, I think for about seven or eight years, um, she wrote her first novel. And that's when she met uh, the man who would then become her husband. Um, or rather, she knew him, but he basically helped her edit the book. And that led to them uh, becoming closer and they ended up getting married. And really, that was the relationship that shaped a lot of her subsequent personal life, but also her writing career, because they then went on to um, move back to California and essentially start writing articles together as a way to make a living. So that's this is the second part, right? Uh, while we were talking earlier about the, the well-known photos of a young Joan Didion, the other part of it um, is the fact that her husband... Um, between Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn, for a time, they really were an it couple. Uh, they were a particular form of it couple because they they weren't exactly, they weren't socialites per se. Um, they weren't actors or, you know, the kinds of people that you would think of as hobnobbing necessarily. But they were um, a sort of literary glamour couple and they were, saw, they were seen that way for a number of years. Hence, the uh, cultural capital involved in writing articles together in being seen as a package. And as you point out, this would also go on to influence uh, her later works. I think, you know, his passing, of course, was transformed into the book The Year of Magical Thinking. Subsequently, her daughter, their daughter, their adopted daughter, Quinn Tana Rudan, her passing became 2011's Blue Nights. And so, um, yeah, you know, I think that it's very important to bring up her marriage because that really set up the second, third, fourth, you know, phases of her life. 
I think um, it's the moving back to California, as you mentioned earlier. California plays such an important part in her in her body of work. The move back to California allowed her to apply the skills and the life experience that she had since gathered, and because that's when you really see from the late sixties onwards uh, all of these um, essays and and magazine pieces that really focus on um, getting to the heart of not just California as it's presented, you know, with the Los Angeles and 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 the Beverly Hillness of it all, but um, San Francisco, homelessness, um, drug abuse, the problems that uh, occur when people live in such vastly disparate communities where one aspect is moving forward. She also talked a lot about politics and her disillusionment with the American uh, government system and and uh, the politicians. So, I. I love the fact that her attachment to the space and her attachment to California then birthed this this kind of genre where she blurs the lines between journalism and fiction and and does that thing which now we call I think literary nonfiction but back then uh, as you said new journalism um, and had both its fans huge fans but also detractors right because. Um, one of the things that people kept pointing out as criticism of her work was that, as you actually said, a lot of it centers herself, that a lot of it is about her experiences in particular places or spaces. I don't find that a problem, but it is a fair criticism. Okay, so uh, that sets us up for the second half because I wanted to ask you a number of questions about style and how uh, and our preferences in relation to Joan Didion's writing. But That is who we're talking about today in our monthly bibliography episode. The first of this year, we are talking about Joan Didion because she passed away uh, on December 23rd, 2021. So very recent. Um, And we want to hear from you. I mean, are you a Joan Didion reader? Let us know. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Brainy, fancy material. BFM 89.9. This is my attempt to make sense of the period that followed, weeks and then months that cut loose any fixed idea I had ever had about death, about illness, about probability and luck, about good fortune and bad, about marriage and children and memory, about grief, about the ways in which people do and do not deal with the fact that life ends, about the shallowness of sanity, about life itself. I have been a writer my entire life as a writer, even as a child, long before what I wrote began to be published. I developed a sense that meaning itself was resident in the rhythms of words and sentences. Hello, everybody. You are listening to By the Book with Lynn and Shamila. And in the first of our 2022 bibliography episodes, we are focusing today on Joan Didion. And we spent uh, a fair amount of time in the first half of the show talking about her cultural impact, um, talking about her, her biography, but also a little bit about her style. And that's what I wanted to focus on in this second part, because um, Joan Didion, to me, was always sold as an author that I simply had to read. Someone that, um, you know, just kind of permeated a lot of different recommendations. Uh, a lot of writers I admired seemed to admire her. And so I, I tried for a time to pick up some of her books and to read her essays. And I have to say that it is not uniformly 
amazing for me at least um, and I think that that has not so much to do with content um, and more to do with style because I feel much the same about Ernest Hemingway um, who was a huge influence uh, on Joan Didion. That's interesting because I know that you like the year of magical thinking um, so does that work for you in in that format, but not so much in her essays? So I don't mean to make it sound like I don't like her essays. I mm. think sometimes it is very much the internal lens that I struggle with. I actually do have an issue um, in general as a reader with authors who start primarily from introversion because um, sometimes, you know what, I just want to know what's happening to the character. <laughs> um, um- no, I, I completely get it. Um, it's weird because I think it might also depend on when you come across Joan mm. Didion and why. Because I read her essays before I became a journalist. I'm, I'm say, I'm, I want to say in my early teen years. And um, if I'm not mistaken, I started with the collection that primarily had a collection of essays on her on San Francisco. Mm. And I remember that it was my first experience reading about these cities, which at that time felt so distant and, and mythical, but reading them through this very this very astute lens. And because of that, that personal touch that she brought to it, the fact that this was presented as nonfiction, but also had such a particular point of view and a very strong observational sense, I loved it. I loved that way of writing. And it's also possible that it's the first time that I came across that kind of quote-unquote journalism. I appreciate all the things that you just mentioned. I think uh, where I struggled um, to get through longer pieces was when it got elliptical. And that's something that we've yet to say about Joan Didion and her writing. But the truth is, you know, she would um, she would kind of start in places or she would have repeating phrases to make a point. And I think it is those sorts of flourishes that sometimes I had um, I had difficulty getting through, which is not to say that I don't appreciate her as a writer, simply that I think um, you're absolutely right, depending on when you come to her, what you expect from her, it is going to be different. I think um, I was someone who also held um, the 60s and 70s in California in a certain type of hazy regard, you know, it, it, was, it, it was a time where a lot of things were happening. And so... I enjoyed that. It was the other stuff, I think, about the American rot and things like that, that I was perhaps less ready for. And when it came to the year of magical thinking, what interested me was it's so raw. It is very raw. And it really is um, the act of, it felt like an act of survival, like a person doing what they knew how to do in order to get through an unthinkable time. Because, um, it documents a period where her daughter falls incredibly ill and in that period where they don't know what's going to happen to her, her husband dies of a massive heart attack. I must confess at this point, um, and I feel very guilty, I haven't read The Year of Magical Thinking and not for anything other than I've never felt like I was ready for it. Mm. I felt like it would be an undertaking that would be emotionally very raw for me. Um, and so I keep putting it off. Um, I, I I feel like this year might be it, uh, perhaps in tribute. Um, but I, I get what you mean. And, and it's worth talking about actually how sad Joan Didion's life or how difficult her life has been because um, the year of magical thinking is one aspect of it. And of course, it's the death of someone with whom she had a strong but also complicated relationship because she's also documented how um, John Gregory Dunn and her considered divorce, how they, they took holidays as a way of getting away from each other. Um, but 
then when you read Blue Nights about her relationship with her daughter and she talks about how that was complicated, how her daughter had her own uh, mental health issues and being adopted. Um, there were tensions between them that she contended with. Um, and I think what I appreciate actually overall about these sorts of writings is the honesty with which she normalizes these experiences, the honesty with which she doesn't. Um, so Joan Didion as a person is cool, but she's not a mystery and she doesn't, or rather, you know, she doesn't seem like she's a mystery um, and she doesn't, she doesn't paper over or glamorize any of these issues. Um, I would actually go so far as to say that she applies an investigative eye into grief. Yes. Um, and, and that's what you get. You really feel, and that's why it feels raw, because you're looking at somebody who it feels like is barely ready to do this, and yet that is what they are doing. And so you really get the sense of somebody plumbing the depths of how they're feeling, but also taking the time to investigate, but why? Um, and taking that writerly or journalistic step back and going, interesting, so you are feeling this way now. You are entirely falling apart on your kitchen floor. Let's remember this and write about about it later. And that is the sense that you get in both of those books. Um, I thought also, before we close off on this side of things, that we should mention her screenplays, because this is actually something that she spoke about. Um, I believe she alluded to it as she regarded screenplays as like a challenge, like a crossword puzzle. I, I think that was, in fact, the phrase that she used in terms of how they were a pleasure to put together in a different way than her novels and her essays. See, I, I'm not surprised at all that she wrote screenplays and actually wrote them so well because her writing is so vivid with a sense of place, right? Um, you really get a sense of something, how something looks when she writes about it in her fiction or nonfiction. So it feels almost natural that she would write screenplays. And I do think it's one of those underrated things. Many people don't realize the things that she's written. And, and I mean, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in um, footnotes, of course. But for instance, nobody, very few people talk about the fact that she wrote A Star is Born. Yes. Um, and I, you know, you say that you're not surprised, but at the same time, one of the points of criticism that she's often experienced has been her dialogue in her novels. So while there is a rich sense of place in her books, in her essays, there hasn't always been the same kind of respect um, accorded to her for how she writes dialogue. And screenplays are so much to do with that. That's true, actually. Um, to be fair, I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of her fiction in the first place. And I've I've, I must say I might have read barely one of them. Um, so my love for Didion's work gravitates definitely towards the nonfiction. And so perhaps I'm not qualified enough to talk about whether her dialogue entirely works because mm. they don't work for me at all. Um, and also because it's it's different, right, when you are writing a journalistic piece, new journalism or otherwise, literary nonfiction or otherwise, um, when you are writing a nonfiction piece, you're quoting somebody and it's an entirely different exercise. Um, so I thought we could close this section um, by giving a recommendation. So if you were to recommend to somebody a Joan Didion piece to, to begin with, what would it be? Oh, a piece. Well, I'm actually going to recommend a collection because it actually collects um, most of her nonfiction. Um, it's the one that I... I'm looking to pick up because it has a lot of her pieces um, all in one place. And that's We Tell Ourselves Stories in Order to Live. Um, it collects, I think, almost everything she has written prior to the early 2000s. But a personal reminder and recommendation to myself is to read The Year of Magical Thinking. Um, so since you got The Year of Magical Thinking tucked away, I will say that um, an essay that 
I love of hers that lives with me and that I really, really enjoy is Why I Write. Um, so she stole the, the title of that essay, and she alludes to this um, from George Orwell. But in it, she actually lays down um, as clear a manifesto as I can think of for who she is as a writer and why it is that she does what she does and how, in fact, her brain functions when it comes to the way she writes. And there's uh, bits in it where she talks about how images shimmer and you have to look for those. And those are the ones that you wait for and you follow. And how how um, in her fiction, in some instances, all she had were two images. And that's what she began with. And it's just a beautiful, um, I don't know, it's just a, a beautiful manifesto from a writer about why it is that they do what they do and also why it is that they couldn't help but do this. This is the only thing. And yeah, I really, really love that one. So um that's it from us for now, at least, on Joan Didion's work. We'd like to hear from you, though. Do you read Joan Didion? Did you enjoy her? Uh, she, of course, sadly passed away fairly recently um, in December 2021. Let us know how you feel. And if you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. <music> Today, of course, since we've been talking about Joan Didion, this is the bit where we usually talk about adaptations. But she actually wrote screenplays, so I think we can talk about that as well. Yes, so maybe we'll start off by um, actually recommending something that, while not an adaptation, is actually about her, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's a documentary called uh, Joan Didion, The Centre Will Not Hold. Um, it came out in uh, 2017 and well worth watching. Um, it's archival footage, it talks about her career, but also actually is a very entertaining and interesting watch that's a very Joan Didion title, isn't it? Yes. The centre will not hold. Um, I So I wanted to ask you about it. What is the structure of that film? Because I haven't seen it. Oh, um, it essentially relies very much on archival footage. Um, so you actually, it almost feels like she's taking you through her life. Um, she was also still alive when this was made. So um, it, it's not a complete documentation of her life, as it were. Very, very removed, not authorial in many ways. So I, I liked it primarily because it felt like you are discovering her through her own images and her words. So um I will put a bookmark on that one and remember to watch it. I also wanted to run you through the various screenplays and plays that she's actually written alongside all the other things that we talked about. So um, primarily, I think, between 71 and 96 um, is the time period that we're talking about. So there was The Panic in Needle Park, which apparently gave Al Pacino his first on-screen role. Um, you have Play It As It Lays, which is based on her novel. You have A Star Is Born, which was the iteration... What is this now? The second? 
this was the second iteration after the yes. Judy Garland version. The Barbara Streisand one. Yes, with Chris Christopherson. Um, and then there was True Confessions uh, and Up Close and Personal. Of course, I've watched both True Confessions and Up Close and Personal with no, no um, idea that she wrote it uh, or wrote it with her husband, um, John Gregory Dunn. Um, and that's kind of bonkers to me, right? Because you wouldn't associate stories like those with her or the kind of writing that she otherwise does. Um, they were, I think, adapted, especially, no, True Confessions was adapted from um, a novel that Dunn had written previously. Uh, but Star is Born, man. I mean, like, who, who would actually associate that with Joan Didion otherwise? Yeah, and that was just something that they wanted to do. Um, you, you know, it wasn't necessarily something that yes. was pitched to them or, or anything. It was just that they had an idea of wanting to do a version of A Star is Born and going for it. And for all the things that we've been talking about, the cool remove, the the central neurotic Didion character, all these different things, there is nothing on display of that in A Star is Born, which is your classic, um, you know, musical melodrama. At this point, I don't think we need to rehash the story as such. Um, we've had uh, a version of our own very recently recently. But yeah, you're right. It's not something that I would necessarily have associated with Joan Didion. I think that her screenplays do sit quite apart from um, from her the main body of her work. I wanted to bring up Joan Didion. Um, it's not so much as an adaptation, but I think for me, when you talk about someone's work living on in particular forms, right? She's one of those writers that has gotten so much... Um, so much of an extension of her work on social media because she's one of those memeable authors. You see her quotes and, and excerpts shared on Instagram and blogs and, um, you know, every woman's day, someone will bring up something that she wrote somewhere. And I find that interesting because um, it almost, it extends the writer's works, but it also reduces them in a particular way that I'm not quite sure I enjoy. I mean, this is something that we've spoken about in a couple of bibliography episodes. It doesn't apply to everybody. But I think um, for your, um, yeah, for your poets and for your essayists, this tends to be the case because it's harder to pluck out life lessons, so to speak, um, from novels. But when it comes to somebody who is a symbol of a certain type of person um, and who is, as you said, right at the start of the show, seen in many ways as aspirational, I think that's how you get this going. And also she had an aesthetic um, back in the 60s. Yeah. And Actually, it's two periods of her life, isn't it, that people like to meme. Um, it's either a very young Joan Didion or a very old Joan Didion. But either which way, you do see it removed from the main um, chunk of her work and the main, um, I suppose, the the kinds of perspectives that she tended to write from get very divorced from the stuff that you see posted up on social media and proliferated there. I have a question for you because I haven't yet read A Year of Magical Thinking, but it was adapted into a play. Mm. Um, and I wanted to ask if you would like to see it made into a movie and whether you think it would work. Uh, I don't know. I feel like perhaps more a mini series, um, you know, where you could expand on that and sit with it a little bit. But I'm not sure whether uh, one and a half hours or two hours of watching somebody go through the extremes of solitude and grief is something I want to watch. I think something like a mini series or a podcast um, would actually Ooh. go right. 
that sounds really interesting because the play is a one-woman production and um, I think the first staging had Vanessa Redgrave in it, which sounds amazing and I wish I had watched it. But um, but no, a podcast actually sounds like such a great way to, to actually use the words. A one-woman play makes a lot of sense. A one-woman film, uh, on the other hand, I think is a bit of a harder sell. So yeah, that, that's where I stand on that at the moment. Could change. I don't know, Vanessa Redgrave, man. Um, we have been talking today about Joan Didion. Um, the last part, of course, focused on the screenplays and plays that she wrote. So we'd like to hear from you. Um, again, are you a fan of Joan Didion? Do you have some favourites you'd like to share? Perhaps WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.